Welcome to another episode of the Cornet Northern California Chapter Podcast. This is Melissa Pacey, Principal at HGA and member of the Leadership Council of the Northern California Chapter of Cornet and your host today. On today's episode, we'll be talking about construction technology and the innovation that is changing the way our environments are built. Here with me to talk about what he's seeing is Greg Mance, a project executive at DPR Construction and host of the podcast, Beyond the Drawing Board. DPR has four major areas of focus, and three of those are centered on construction technology, making Greg the perfect person to educate us on the emerging trends that we can expect to see in the near future. But before we do that, I'm honored to thank our podcast sponsor for today's episode, RMW, who is celebrating 50 years of design excellence. RMW is an award-winning, full-service architectural and interior design firm with studios in San Francisco, San Jose, and Sacramento. Thank you, RMW. And thank you, Greg, for joining me today to talk about what we're seeing in construction technology, as well as what listeners can expect to see moving forward. Could you tell our listeners a little bit about yourself? Yeah, th- thanks, Melissa. I'm very happy to be here today. As you said, I'm, I'm Greg Mance, project exec with DPR Construction. Um, I really focus specifically on, on the integration between design and construction. I had about 35 years in the in the architectural business before joining DPR about 10 years ago uh, with a specific interest in really trying to align and create that integrated processes of of working between design and construction. And that's kind of where technology then comes in. Since I'm pretty sure our listeners are eager to hear what you have to say, let's jump right in. I know that prefabrication isn't new, as I'm sure many of our listeners are familiar with more than a few prefabricated wall manufacturers who've been in business for 15 years or more. Plus, furniture systems, namely the cubicle, were maybe one of the first steps into prefabrication. But we've seen this progress as technology has evolved, and now we're seeing entire buildings show up to site in prefabricated pieces. Greg, can you talk a little bit about what you're seeing happening right now? Sure, absolutely. Um, We have, in fact, embarked on a huge initiative internally at DPR, uh, having invested now in our own prefabrication factory down in Phoenix, uh, where we do focus on uh, wall uh, module componentry, uh, both for interiors and exteriors, as well as load-bearing scenarios. So what we are finding is that more and more of the the general plans of of, uh, main buildings are being prefabricated off-site, whether it's anything from bathroom pods to, um, you know, consolidated racks for where trades are, are all are contributing to the development of mechanical racks and that sort of stuff. Our focus is specifically on, on uh, uh, prefabricated building components. We have steered away so far from the modular sort of delivery. Uh, we're struggling a little bit trying to really justify shipping air, if you will, through the uh, through the year. So what we're focused on is being able to flat pack our panels and deliver the maximum amount of material to the site on, on each of our trucking loads. So we've had some terrific success with projects all over the country in speeding up the delivery of our jobs because of our being able to carefully, uh, um, you know, deliver more material to the site in that regard. Absolutely. Um, I know one of the challenges we often face is availability of materials. Um, often, you know, things are specified that may need to come from abroad. Has um, Have you seen the prefabrication help with any of this? 
Well, we haven't been faced with that yet uh, relative to the product that we deliver because it's, uh, in fact, we take raw steel in one side of our factory, roll our own studs and, and push out, um, in some cases, actually finished panel systems for exterior applications. Um, so far, we haven't been faced with dealing with any exotic materials that are creating any sort of um, you know, considerations for us at this point, but I'm sure we will at some point. But at the end of the day, we're able to literally, from within our shop, deliver soup to nuts, a finished product that's delivered on site. And in the case of many of our interior products, uh, fully plumbed and fully electrified, um, you know, when delivered to the sites, which saves tremendous time and it also changes, it also uh, saves a lot of labor in the field. Now that's a consideration we may want to focus on because labor is really what's what's uh, causing most of the trouble we have in our industry today. So the more of that labor we can get off the sites and into the factories where we have better control over quality and, and standards and that sort of stuff, the better. So, um, you know, to minimize the amount of labor we have on site uh, does a lot of stuff for us, including uh, safety considerations at the end of the day. So if we're looking at a typical project schedule versus something that's using your prefabricated system, can you give us a rough idea of what that schedule impact looks like? Well, obviously it depends on the scope of the project, but I can speak to one project that we just did down in Santa Clara where we housed, uh, uh, we sheathed the entire building with our own exterior panel systems. Um, and we were literally able to enclose the building and. Uh, in about three or four weeks relative to three or four months that we would have seen in the past, you know, for stick build framing solutions. So it definitely is saving time on the schedule, uh, no doubt about Absolutely. it. And about how long did it take in the factory to build those panels before they were on site? Well, again, when we push a, a roll of cold steel through the, through the factory, we could have a finished wall panel out within a week, certainly. And, and again, the, the key to all of this is, is the fact that we are digitally fabricating all of these panels. So we're directly taking information and data from the models directly into the factory componentry. So everything is, is robotically welded and, and that sort of stuff. So it really moves very, very quickly. And of course, once you get that first panel out the door, then the rest are following right behind it. So you can literally start generating material for your sites within weeks. Uh, in terms of the overall uh, processing of the job. That's interesting. Are you finding that you have to work differently with your partners in order to have that be formatted correctly to work with the factory? Yeah, no doubt about it. We certainly, whenever, whenever we engage with one of our architectural partners and we've made the decision that we're going to go down this path, um, we obviously get them on an airplane, go visit our factory, have them make sure they understand exactly what we can and cannot do with our product. Uh, and more often than not, our design partners are, are, are uh, excited about the, the uh, opportunities to, to work with these systems because they can see a lot of benefits on their end too, just in terms of the quality of delivery of products. So, um, yeah, no, it's, it's, uh, uh, it's been great to be able to work with some of our top designers that have figured out some really cool things to do with our product. One of our sectors that we're focusing on and we're having some tremendous success in is obviously student housing, where you have some modularity in the way units are laid out and that sort of stuff. So we can deliver one of our, our um, 
you know, cold rolled steel loaded structures, complete soup to nuts, including uh, floor panels. And then if we're skinning the building, we're, we're literally delivering almost 80% of the job to the site with our own, our own product. So there's some tremendous advantages there. That's fantastic. I'm sure, um, you know, anyone developing a building must be interested in just the time efficiencies. I'm wondering, what is the kind of cost structure of uh, prefabricated versus a typical stick-built structure? Well, again, it's hard to say based on the on the building type. Um, there is no doubt savings, and it usually comes in the in the uh, schedule savings and the general conditions, being able to get on and off the site much more quickly and efficiently. Um, we're not necessarily saving more in materials, although in the case of our uh, our factory being able to roll raw product into steel where we have very little waste in the factory because, again, everything's coming directly from the model. And because the model has been so carefully choreographed with our design partners and beyond, there's, there's very little waste in the, in the, in the uh, work product. So it's a um, very efficient way of delivering, delivering uh, components to the job. I feel like you sort of read my mind a little bit because my next question was going to be about sustainability. Have you had any projects that you've worked on this way go for lead or, you know, anything above that? And how is kind of this process impacting that? Um, well, of course it is. It's uh, it's hard to say. I'm trying to think of a, a couple of our student housing jobs have been able to achieve lead goal. And certainly the the idea of minimizing waste on the job site is, is significant. And so without doubt, it does help in, in accumulating points to for the delivery of the job and minimizing our carbon footprint in, in delivering jobs like this. So Greg, one of the things that you know we've seen and heard is that the manufacturing of the prefabricated systems, because they are happening in a controlled environment and have um, much more regular and um, expected parts and pieces can have a little bit higher quality. Is that something you could talk about and educate our listeners on? You know, absolutely, Melissa. It's it's true that uh, the delivery of our componentized products in a factory environment naturally makes quali- the quality of the delivery so much more robust when you're dealing with consistent, you know, sort of prototypical product types and and processes where you have the same guys working in the, on the factory floor doing the, the same job, you're you're able to get a much better controlled environment, not only with the finished materials, but just in the, the overall, uh, you know, geometry of the of the product itself. So, yeah, no, it's it's gone. It's had tremendous impact on the delivery of, of the quality product, being able to deliver things in a, in a factory environment. And I imagine that that would directly translate into the overall maintenance required on a building over time as well. Yeah, it could do. I mean, we're still using the same building materials that we always have. We're still doing stuff with drywall and that sort of thing. But just from the robustness and the sturdiness of our product, um, it's going to have a much more robust lifetime. You know, just just the fact that we're building our our uh, interior panel systems, everything's welded seam, no no screws at all, so you get a much tighter product that's literally built to a tolerance within, you know, an eighth of an inch. Uh, so, yeah, it's, it's going to have a tremendous long-term benefit for, for owners 
over the lifetime of the building. That's fantastic. I'm wondering, since these are much more robust panels and have higher durability, if you are providing these to your competitors or if these are just DPR use only? Very good question. And the answer to that is yes, we want to. We haven't really started that yet because we're just trying to get our processes dialed in. But, but clearly the most efficient use of our factory in Phoenix would be to be able, be able to have 24-hour operations, right? So right now we're only one, running, you know, one shift, and it's usually for products on the DPR uh, payroll. But to be more efficient and to deliver much more effectively and cost-effectively, to be able to have three shifts working 24 hours a day, uh, we'll be able to deliver much more product for our for our, our um, for other contractors that want to buy from us. And that's been in play. We've had we've had a lot of conversations with, uh, you know, some of our or competitors, if you will, that want to buy product from us. So, and the same thing with sure pods too. The bathroom pods, um, obviously, for that to be a a, a robust business force, we have to sell to to other people. But the good news is there are not a lot of competitors in the modular bathroom business. And so, uh, if you want to if you want to do it, we have to be considered one of the product lines to to buy from. So, very good question, Melissa. I also wonder, I know I personally and probably many of our listeners have quite a bit of experience with um, modular walls. There are quite a few out in the marketplace. How does your product differ from those products or is there some overlap happening there? Well, no. If you're referring to the interior partition scenarios like dirt walls and those sort of things, they are built specifically to give you flexibility and redoing um, an interior layout, right? That's their whole uh, that's their whole mission. And in our case, we are not doing that. Our product is designed to be permanently installed in space, um, you know, screwed top and bottom, and drywalled in as a permanent sort of scenario. So uh, it is not designed as a furniture system. Um, and, and so that way, you know, we're never going to be in competition with the people like Dirt and others, which have have a very specific product niche, no doubt about it. Um, but we're not we're not really competing at all with that with that product type. Yeah, I think that's helpful for everyone to know. Great. If you had a crystal ball and being so involved in kind of what you've set up at DPR to date, where would you see prefabrication going in the next five to ten years? Well, no doubt it's going to continue to, to, to grow, and I think more and more of our competitors and other, other uh, leaders in the industry are heading down this path as well. Um, there are firms that are out there that are getting a lot of notoriety for, for really trying to effectively deliver you know, modular components to the job site. Uh, I should also suggest that we've just acquired um, one of the top prefabricated bathroom manufacturers in the industry, SurePods. So with that, we're able to, uh, we are actually delivering, you know, componentized modular bathroom um, product to to sites all over the country as well. And of course, you can imagine in hotel, in the hospitality space or the student housing space or even the hospital space where you have significant rapidity in in how these... uh, you know, modular products look, and it really, really helps build it to deliver these things on site. 
uh, effectively. And we're going to see more and more of that as the industry continues to catch up and really find ways to be more efficient. Does this pose any challenges for, like, building inspections or permitting or anything like that that people should be aware of? Um, you know, it's, it's an interesting question. Um, the agencies having jurisdiction are starting to figure this stuff out, and in some cases we're actually sending special inspectors to our factory to witness the construction of our product before it gets on a truck. Um, and therefore, then the inspections are very, very simple when it gets on site. It's, uh, you know, it's very easily delivered. Where we might have a little bit of trouble is, is certainly in the, uh, um, you know, the area of, of dealing with jurisdictions where that, that don't have this experience, and we're having to educate those, those people as well. So it's a little bit of a struggle there. But at the most part, the industry is starting to catch up, starting to figure this stuff out. Uh, we we are finding there's still a little bit of problem in the uh, with the uh, union halls. You know some of the some of the uh, trade partners are not yet looking at this as favorably as they could. Obviously, it means uh, in some cases losing work for their for their people uh, in the union halls. So we have to work around that and carefully choreograph with all our trade partners as to how we can. Uh, uh, effectively deliver, and in some cases, we're actually asking our partners to to send people down to our factory in Phoenix to do the installations uh, there directly in our factory. So obviously, we're trying to keep everybody engaged and involved. Well, and I I would imagine um, is there kind of like the potential for a new trade to start to begin to emerge that is dealing kind of with the assembly or the you know assembling of these prefabricated pieces in the field. You know, that's a very interesting question, uh, whether you would call it a new trade or not. We, of course, have a lot of our own self-performed work teams. Uh, in fact, we're delivering just about everything, um, uh, you know, every trade to the a project type, type except for perhaps mechanical. We are even delivering electrical at this point, but um, our, you know, our, our classic drywall, uh, framing and drywall, crews have been uh, really the guys to step up and become our installers because they're most familiar with layout and how, you know, two-dimensional wall structures are supposed to work. So being able to have them take take a product off a truck and assemble it quickly in the field, it's, they've become very, very good at that. So again, when you talk about vertical integration between our self-performed work trades and our and our factory in Phoenix, it's starting to become more and more seamless. So, when, again, when we deliver something on site, including our exterior panels, which are, you know, hung from the side of a building, our, it's our drywall uh, subtrade, our drywall, you know, self-performed work crews that are doing most of the installation work. So, that's really interesting. Good. Yeah, that's amazing. I did want to mention one other really. A really key element to the success of all of this from a prefabrication perspective, uh, we talked a little bit about the, the use of the model and how sophisticated uh, we've become in the use of BIM. And are, you know, I'm very, very pleased that the architectural community is finally uh, catching up with what we've been doing in the construction industry for a long, long time. But my job, specifically for DPR, I'm actually an ex-architect, or still an architect, but spent 30 years in the, in the industry on the design side before joining DPR about 10 years ago. And my whole focus is to really work with that integration between our design partners and our construction people uh, 
uh, our construction resources so that we can really focus on streamlining the delivery of the job. So again, we're trying to eliminate waste not only on the job sites, but waste in the design process as well. Anytime we can eliminate rework uh, from, from our design partners, the better. So I try to work more and more upstream with our design partners, introducing them to the DVC product, focusing on the delivery of the model so that we've got a really effective and efficient tool that helps us push the button and deliver a product on the back end, which is our ideal scenario at this point. Are you using any kind of proprietary technology that you would like to talk about? Uh, not really, although I think when we go from the model, from the basic Revit model, obviously there's a number of different spooling softwares and stuff that help us um, go from the model to to actually push out, you know, um, spooling plans and that sort of stuff for our, for our drywall trades to be able to work with. So there really isn't anything proprietary, but again, to be able to seamlessly go from the model to the to the factory floor and be able to transmit that data to to our robots does does require a little bit of software interface. But uh, for the most part, you know, we're, we're following on the heels of the manufacturing industry that has been doing this stuff for years, right? So um, yeah, that's it's kind of fun to see all of this come together. Uh, Absolutely. You know, we're at a really exciting time in our business. That's awesome. So I know another major focus in the building industry is leveraging technology for the tools that we use. I was actually thinking earlier today that I remember when it was like super innovative just to have an iPad on site and be able to make changes in real time to the drawings. Um, But now many design firms and construction companies are using virtual reality and even augmented reality throughout design and construction. And so I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about the tools that you're using and how you're working differently with your partners in the field. Yeah, no, you're exactly right. I mean, I think the days of the paper drawings obviously are are, are limited. It's kind of interesting. Uh, even our estimators now, although those were they were always the guys that had to have the stack of drawings on their desks. Uh, even our even our precon folks are are uh, leveraging the technology for for quantity takeoffs. We're using the model for, you know, model-based estimating and taking things off the field. We are literally building the buildings with iPads in the field. So, um, and there's been some tremendous strides in in all kinds of different software tools, plan, grid, and and otherwise that uh, allow us to keep up with changes in the drawing and make sure that our superintendents and foremen in the field are, are working from the most current data uh, as we push out revised drawings into, you know, into plan grid. You're able to literally flip through the drawings effectively and, and focus on those things that have changed. So, um, yeah, no, technology from a general perspective is, is, uh, is continuing to advance. And the use of augmented reality, obviously, what's really great about it is it allows us to immediately test the installation that we see in the field against what the model was showing, right? Because we can instantaneously go from the model to the what we're seeing in the field. And in some cases, uh, if, a, if a particular area of the building has been drywalled up or closed up and is taped and everything, we can still see behind the drywall to understand, you know, how duct penetrations might have worked or conduit is flowing and that sort of stuff, which is which is really great. Same thing when you talk about concrete in the uh, 
in the field. You know, so often we've got, you know, post-tension uh, structures with tendons that are very, very dicey to try to drill through after the fact. But just having the accuracy between the model and what we're building in the field gives us a lot more level of comfort. And from a safety perspective, it's tremendous to be able to know, uh, you know, where tendons are if we have to do something new in the field. Um, but again, we're, we're, we're so advanced now that we're sleeving everything, um, and, and so we're literally leaving uh, nothing to chance in the field when it comes to, to understanding how the, the final product's supposed to come together, which is really great. Our design partners, our architectural partners, are, are really starting to push the ball down the field in terms of the use of virtual, virtual reality to, to really... Uh, uh, you know, sell our clients on what a final product could look like for the use of goggles and walkthroughs and fly-throughs. There's some just great stuff that that the architectural community is generating that is of tremendous value to everybody as we advance the design, uh, you know, into construction, into the field. So we talked about augmented reality and how we're using it in the field. But again, in the use of virtual reality, the architectural community and, and our design partners are, are doing some absolutely fantastic things uh, in the use of virtual reality to, to really convey the message in terms of what the end product wants to look like for, for our clients and the, and the fly-throughs and the models and the super realistic renderings that we're getting nowadays. It's, it's really spectacular. Uh, we just submitted a design bill proposal for a client down in South Bay and our design partners and literally the course of just a couple of days created some imagery of what we were proposing that is so realistic that it was, it was just amazing and it really helped strike a chord with our client. They knew exactly what we were proposing. Uh, so it was, it was really great with the tools that you guys are using today and design partners are using today. Yeah, I think, um, you know, the combination of those things obviously is really helping to expedite schedules and expectations. Um, I know one of the things that we've talked about a little bit is the use of AR in the field with kind of clash detection of maybe systems and elements. Um, do you want to talk about that a little bit for the listeners as well? Yeah, no, you're, you're exactly right. And again, when you talk about the multitudes of different systems having to, to uh, share space in a building to be able to, to, to first um, you know, use the model for class detection to eliminate those conflicts, uh, and then to be able to realize that again in the field when you when you have a condition that that doesn't work, and you're able to realize it in the model as you start working in the field. It, it's really it's helping us tremendously in eliminating rework. In fact, uh, built of course the uh, uh, UC Mission Bay Hospital for UCSF down in Mission Bay, and we actually did a study. That, that used to, we used to talk about the amount of rework that we would have to do in the field because of conflicts between systems. And um, this was probably the most robust use of the model we had ever done. This was two or three years ago. And we were able to do a study that showed we were saving in about 90% of, of, uh, of rework that would have had to normally been done in the field. We were able to solve it in the model before we got there. So. Uh, it's just it's tremendous in terms of saving us time and, and money to get stuff done in the field these days. Obviously, there's those savings that um, impact the client 
but are there other impacts that you're seeing to the client that they've realized as benefits because of these tools and technology? Yeah, I mean, I think uh, one of the most important things that we're able to do too, as you as you know, just in the development of of the significant amount of information that architects and and engineers are are having to assemble to put together a set of drawings, and that we need to build the build the building. It's being able to track that data from inception all the way through construction to a product that we're actually able to deliver to the client that they can act on from a facilities management perspective. Um, we have a group actually called ViewOps that's been focusing specifically on that data management piece and how can we manage the data way up front in the design process and, and help our design teams understand exactly what information we need when we turn this thing over to the owners. Uh, it's it's provided, it's you know, of tremendous value to them when you consider that the operation of the buildings might be a hundred times more than the construction cost is over the lifetime of the building. So, uh, again, the continued advancement and use of these uh, of data management and these technologies is serving the clients in tremendous ways these days. And I can imagine kind of using that as well as some of these other emerging technologies that that transfer of information from you all to the building owners has tra- changed dramatically. Um, do you want to talk a little bit about that? Yeah, no, no doubt about it. I mean, you you know, from the old days, we used to hand over, you know, maybe five or six or twenty volumes of, you know, six inch thick manuals to the owners, which ended up in the basement somewhere and never got looked at again. And and you'd end up with rolls of greens and drawings that are turned over, and that that slowly migrated into our turning over CDs uh, with all of this information that, again, the owners were having difficult time trying to decipher and what it was it good for and how could I use it, that sort of stuff. And then it, we ended up turning over thumb drives, right, with all the same data. Well, we, we saw that as, as not only a, a concern but also an opportunity, and that was uh, in how we turn over our product to our to our clients when we walk away from a job. So we've developed this program called ViewOps um, that is run by uh, one of my terrific partners, Aaron Peterson here at DPR, who focuses on on how to, again, how to manipulate the data such that when we turn it over to the owner, we're turning it over in a website-based cloud um, cloud-based, you know, turnover package that allows him to have access to the model, very simple controls to understand how to look through his building, very simple search um, mechanisms that allow him to understand where all of his key components are. So you, we're literally able to take a layman uh, facilities manager type and turn over this product in a very, very useful manner uh, and it's in the cloud, so we still have access to that that data. We're able to, you know, manage it for the client as needed, uh, and that sort of stuff. So it's a much more robust and useful turnover package that we're able to provide for for our clients. And again, it's all based on the uh, on the development of the model with our design partners way up front and chasing it all the way through the delivery process. So. Um, it's it's a tremendous value to the owners at the end of the day. Absolutely. I feel like it also makes everyone's lives easier as changes need to happen to the building and whatnot. 
all that information yeah. is at everyone's fingertips much yeah. more well, readily. Uh, you know, as a designer, the first thing you're looking for are as-built drawings, right? Well, if we can push a button and with confidence send you something that we know is, you know, is absolutely correct, um, it makes your job easier, you know, when changes are made. For sure. Down there. Absolutely. Okay, so now I'm going to go a little, uh, little farther into the future. I know I've been seeing, you know, self-healing concrete, robots on site, definitely, you know, things that we probably couldn't have imagined a little while back when we both first started our careers. Um, what is the craziest, most interesting thing that you've seen lately, and how is it helping improve project delivery? Well, I'll tell you what, the use of artificial intelligence and robotics is going to change our industry, and it, it really already is. There's a, there's a group here in the Bay Area called Built Robotics who are actually doing automated self-driving heavy equipment manufacturing, um, you know, everything from backhoes to tractors to, you know, bulldozers, major heavy equipment. And it's kind of cool because just like, you know, a lot of the classic civil engineering, civil construction folks have been able to work from, uh, you know, basic datum drawings for a long, long time. Um, you're able to literally program in from the models, again, uh, exactly the, the, the amount of dirt that needs to be scraped or the amount of foundation that needs to be dug. And, and literally can push a button and get 24 hours productivity with the use of one or maybe two people where it would have been a team of 30 before. Um, so it's, you know, we're going to see more and more of that where you get 24 hour productivity through the use of robots uh, along the way. And we're really excited about it. And we actually have a tool that we've invested and in, helped develop called the Laybot, which is, uh, a robot layout machine. So again, we can do our layouts before our buildings are, are say the interior uh, walls are constructed or brought in from DBC. We can actually do all our chalk line layouts robotically in the evenings when the crews have gone home. Uh, so again, we're getting much greater productivity. So, and that's only going to get better and better through the use of, of, of AI and beyond. So we're excited about it. And, and then, of course, uh, you, know, you, you talk about self-healing concrete. I just saw a, uh, a recent video on 3D printing of a, of a house in Long Island. I don't know if you guys saw that, but they literally were able to 3D print a 1,900-square-foot house in a matter of, what, six days or something like that with two people on the site. And it, uh, it's amazing what's going to happen as soon as we figure this whole thing out. Yeah, actually, it's... That's a great point. 3D printing, I've definitely noticed more and more is happening, especially in residential. Um, yeah. Have you all been doing anything with 3D printing at a smaller scale? You know, we've been doing models for a long time, as most of the design professions have, um, and we've gotten some. We've done some pretty sophisticated things from a prototype thing scale. We haven't done anything full size yet, because obviously that requires some pretty significant investment and the right kind of pro uh, project. But, yeah, I mean, I'd love to. I want to continue to search for ways to do something like that. It would really be great. What is that right project? Well, as as you can say, you know, the, the house that was built in Long Island was a perfect rectilinear sort of 
building with very simple interior layouts and the machine was able to move back and forth at great speed without the complexity of some unique and strange geometries, right? Um, but, but perhaps we're going to see 3D printing uh, happening on, say, exterior skin components where you might have a like a, you know, the unique geometry of shade screens or, or sunscreens that that might require, uh, you know, printing rather than trying to otherwise form and construct a, a concrete sort of module, right? So we could see that happening perhaps. Um, so, yeah, I mean, we'll have to continue to play with it and see where it all comes out. Yeah, it feels like the possibilities are endless with 3D printing for yeah. sure. So, Greg, what else do our listeners need to know about construction technology before we end our podcast today? Well, I mean, again, with what's happening in the world uh, today relative to the, the labor shortage and, and uh, how why clients are continuing to want to see their projects happen faster and faster, uh, the fact that we have just a significant not only housing but building shortage when you consider the population of the world, we are going to have to find a way to deliver projects you know, more efficiently, better, cheaper, uh, you know, and faster. And, and the only way to do that is to leverage technology, uh, you know, as efficiently and as effectively as we can. And, and again, there's some great things happening on the design side, you know, with, with data-driven design sort of solutions, which eliminate a lot of sort of, uh, you know, redundant, tasks on the design side, if you will, uh, through the use of tools to help us manage code requirements in buildings and check for code violations and that code considerations. Just the ability to automate those tasks on the design side and eliminate some of that redundancy that happens from project to project uh, and then continue to chase the technology into the field. We're going to have to find a way to build buildings with fewer people. To be successful, and and that's really going to be key. I'm excited to see where AI takes us. I mean, obviously, it could go in any number of different directions, and when we continue to see firms like Bill Robotics and others come up with with cool and unique ways to go, it's only going to continue to advance the industry. So we're really excited about it. It's a great future for it. Awesome. Yeah, we are as well. Fantastic. Thanks, Greg. Could you also tell our listeners a little bit about your podcast? Um, Thank to Melissa. Uh, what we've been doing at uh, DPR is we've created a little podcast we call Beyond the Drawing Board. And uh, my focus and, and emphasis is really talking with executives from the design community and, and really trying to get their thoughts and ideas about what the future of our industry looks like. Uh, as I mentioned, my emphasis is really in, in design, design phase management, design integration, and to to really talk to our partners. And, and so far, we've talked to the CEOs of some of the largest design firms in the country. Uh, it's, it's really been a terrific uh, opportunity to learn from the le- thought leaders in our industry about how they see our industry changing in the coming years as well. Thanks so much again for joining us today. To stay up to date with the Northern California chapter, please follow us on LinkedIn and on Twitter at Cornet NorCal. If you like our podcast, please subscribe on iTunes and share on social media. We'd love to keep this conversation going and want to hear what's on your mind. And thank you to all of our listeners who have inquired about sponsoring the podcast. We've had an overwhelming response. 
please do still reach out if you're interested on our website, nocal.cornetglobal.com. And if you want to hear more from Greg, please check out his podcast, Beyond the Drawing Board. As always, please share your thoughts and comments on our LinkedIn page under the post for this episode. I'm Melissa Pacey, and I'll talk to you next time.